This podcast is a co-production of Slate and The Appeal, a new publication about criminal justice. And it's a companion to my new book, also called Charged, and available wherever you buy books. Okay, thanks for listening. Here's the show. Previously on Charged. When they got to the, to the lobby, Tarari's sitting in with his friend, and they're just looking out the window. They're not doing anything. And then they just took him down. That's Daniel Lynch, Tarari's new lawyer, talking about the police arresting Tarari. My position at that point was that the stop and the seizure by the police officers was unconstitutional, that we had a pretty good chance of winning the hearing in this case. Lynch made this argument to the prosecutors, and that opened a new door. The prosecutor then decided to say, oh, why don't we see if we can screen him for YCP? YCP, a youth diversion program that had become a kind of escape hatch for defendants like Tarari. I'm Emily Bazelon, and this is Charged, a true punishment story inside New York's gun court. No matter who your lawyer is, it's hard to get into YCP. Just a small group of young defendants are even considered. The new DA, Eric Gonzalez, quietly supported diversion programs like this one. But he was also afraid of the risk. If one kid went bad, the headlines could kill Eric's whole project of reform. Inside YCP, every social worker knew the same fear, including Maxim Kreingold, who'd been handling these cases for the DA's office for a dozen years. Maxim was the one who met with Tarari, and he'd be the one to decide whether or not to recommend him for the program. You're coming to a government agency that, you know, is there to monitor and make sure that they're responsible for safety of the community. But on the other hand, they are there to give you a real solid chance, as long as you use this chance wisely. At first glance, Maxim had very little in common with Tarari. He grew up next door to Poland, in Belarus, before it was a country. And he came to America with maybe the least likely qualification to be a teen counselor. I grew up in the former Soviet Union. We were building communism, basically, and there was no such a concept as the teenage years. We graduate from school, you either go to university, or you turn 18 and you go to the army. Either way, you were supposed to mature kind of in the middle. Like Tarari, Maxim grew up needing to protect himself. In his city, Golmol, there was a long history of violence against Jews and pogroms. And Maxim stuck out like, well, like a small Jewish kid. Growing up as a Jewish kid in former Soviet Union and then when it collapsed, you would experience some kind of bullying in school and on the street just because you're Jewish. For Maxim, the bullying was the backdrop for his life. Taunts on the street, heated moments in the hallways at school, confrontations that stayed with him, even now, decades later. You don't know how to feel when somebody spits in your face. And, and, and then you have to walk like that. I mean, like, I mean, you can't take a shower in school, so like, it's it just very, like, it, it's very degrading. When Maxim was 14, he was injured by a gym teacher and then beaten by a group of students. It all resulted in a spinal fracture that still causes him pain. So Maxim did share a formative experience with a lot of his future clients in gun court. He understood what it was like to feel victimized 
and why a young person might do almost anything to stop being someone else's prey. And at a time when a lot of Jews were fleeing the former Soviet Union, Maxim made his move to America, to New York. I didn't know English at all. I didn't even know ABC. It just, it's like you don't know what's going on. You just don't know anything, and you appreciate every single person who, who can <laughs> tell you what's going on, or can guide you, advise you, or even go with you somewhere. You really can't become dependent. Maxim found some English classes. And eventually, he worked his way through college, selling candy, and then got a master's in social work. He wanted to switch roles and become the person who could guide other people. When Tarari and his mom first showed up at the YCP office, they weren't quite sure what to make of Mr. Maxim. His voice did not match him. Uh-huh, <laughs> so uh-huh. When I saw him, I was like, wow, hello. Belinda realized that the person who held her son's fate in his hands— the one who would recommend whether to send him to prison or give him a second chance, was an immigrant in his 40s wearing a yarmulke. And yet... When we sat down with him, he he's not judgmental, very genuine with his words when he was talking to me and Tarari, and he made me feel very comfortable. Um, it felt like I just clicked with him, like he was one of the homies. <laughs> And he was funny, too. He had me laughing. First and foremost, Maxim had to decide if he could work with Tarari. He had a nuanced method for figuring that out. It's even like little things, like you, you, you walk with a client in a building, right? And you want to see, like, sometimes they will turn and say hi to somebody. So they will hold the elevator door. Or they will open the door and ask you to go first. You want to see everything positive the young person has to offer. And that's how you that's how you build the trust. They can see, they learn from it, and it's all part of the bigger picture. What do you look for? Right? You might look at the pants that are hanging down, or you might see a person who, yes, wearing pants down, but they said hi to the receptionist. Or as they leave, they waved goodbye. You know, that's something you can build on. Tarari passed the initial test, and Maxim recommended admitting him to YCP. But Tarari still had hurdles in front of him in court. To get into YCP, he had to plead guilty. And his lawyer, Daniel Lynch, had to negotiate the price in the event that Tarari failed the program. This is what plea bargaining is like when you're up against the wall. Here's Lynch. The law mandates an automatic prison sentence, what is essentially sending a young person you know, who's made one mistake to prison for several years and ultimately changing their life for the worse. Especially if you find out, as Lynch did, that you're gambling with your client's life in front of one particular judge, the Honorable Vincent Del Judas. Judge Del Judas does a lot of high-level cases. In fact, I appeared before him on a homicide case like two years ago. And, you know, he's not necessarily known as a defendant's judge, let's say. Judge Del Judas looks a little like Colonel Sanders. You know, the KFC guy. And I don't know what this says about him exactly, but recently, the New York Post caught him sneaking little puffs of a vape on the bench in the middle of a highly publicized murder trial. When I asked Del Judas about Tarari's case, he said he couldn't comment. But here's what we do know. Judge Del Judas imposed the maximum possible sentence for Tarari if he failed YCP. 15 years in prison. So if he screws up, he's going to get worse than he would otherwise. 
Trari could not get that number out of his head. 15 years, that's that's a long time. Like, I'm feeling like I ain't going to be able to see my family. 15 years, that's like my whole life. And neither could Valinda. Even when the judge said it, I looked at my son and his face was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Oh, can't. Mm-mm. So that's a plea bargain. We're accustomed to seeing trials with a jury and a judge and well-honed arguments in open court. But that's TV. In reality, it's plea bargains all day long and trials that are the very rare exception. Think for another minute about Terari's case. Lynch was arguing that the police had no reason to stop and search Terari. If that was right, then Terari shouldn't have to plead guilty. If you're arrested illegally, you get to walk. But here's the thing. If Terari said, I'm taking my case to trial, he'd be taking a very big risk. Because if the jury didn't see things his way, then the prosecutor and the judge would make him pay by sending him to prison for a very long time. Daniel Lynch knew this. Everyone in the courtroom did. Go back in history, though, and you'll see that it was never meant to be this way. Trial by jury was one of the fundamental values the founders wrote into the Constitution. It's number six in the Bill of Rights. But the trial started vanishing a long time ago. The thing about plea bargains is that they save judges and lawyers a lot of work. And they're the ones who are the repeat players in the system, with an incentive to keep it moving as smoothly and quickly as possible. The nail in the coffin for taking your case to trial came in 1978 in Kentucky with a guy named Paul Hayes. Hayes groomed horses for a living. He had a mother with diabetes and four younger brothers and sisters to support. One day, Hayes used a bad check to pay for $88.30 worth of groceries. The prosecutor wanted Paul Hayes to go to prison for five years. But Hayes refused to plead guilty. He wanted a trial. Hayes had a problem, though. He had a criminal record. So the prosecutor said, okay, if you make me take this case to trial, I'm going to charge that bad check as your third strike. Three strikes, you're out. You get a life sentence. Hayes rolled the dice and went to trial anyway. And he lost. He got that life sentence. And eventually, he appealed to the Supreme Court for mercy. Here's his lawyer, making the most compelling argument he could think of, that the life sentence was nothing less than a giant unconstitutional threat. When, from the record, we see that when the arrangement offered by the prosecutor was rejected, he then threatened that if you don't accept my plea bargain and plead guilty, I am going to increase the stakes against you. And if we can convict you of that, there will be a mandatory life sentence. Now, I submit to you the only purpose for the threat is to deter the exercise of the constitutional rights. In the situation but the Supreme Court didn't buy this argument. They said there was no limit on what a prosecutor could threaten to avoid a trial, at least not in the Constitution. And so the Supreme Court ruled against Paul Hayes. In the end, he did get mercy from his local parole board, which goes to show how extreme his life sentence seemed outside of court. In any case, the upshot here is that plea bargaining with no restraints is perfectly legal. And so it's become the world we live in. Courtroom drama is a relic of a bygone era. Nowadays, in most real-life trial courts, 95% of convictions or more are plea bargains. The hard choice is always the same. Take our deal or gamble away your future. That's why Terari didn't go to trial. He had a really good case to make in court, 
that the police stopped him illegally. But it was just too risky. It was safer to walk the knife's edge with YCP, even though, if he fell, he'd be looking at that whole 15 years. If you've been enjoying this podcast, I want to let you know that it wouldn't have been possible without Slate's membership program, Slate Plus. The support from members has helped fund exciting projects at Slate, like Slow Burn and Standoff, and the daily journalism you see on Slate.com every day. If you want to help Slate continue this kind of work, please sign up for Slate Plus now at Slate.com slash charged. It's only $35 for the first year, and you'll get benefits like ad-free podcast feeds and discounted tickets to Slate's live events. And you'll get even more episodes of Charged. Sign up at Slate.com slash charged. Maxim's job was to help Tarari deal with the gamble he was taking. He broke everything down to me. And then, like, being in the projects, especially in a program like that, being in the projects is a lot of challenges. First thing, your neighborhood. We ask most of our young people to try to minimize, you know, the negative contacts. Minimize the negative contacts. That meant a bunch of things. But to Maxim, the most pressing risk for Terari wasn't what I thought it would be. It wasn't the Bloods or the people Terari grew up with. It was actually the police because of Terari's lawsuit against them. One afternoon, I was talking to the two of them and the subject came up. They practically finished each other's sentences. One of my goals was to make sure that we do not jeopardize him by accepting into the program. And why would that be? Because of the 15 years? More of his prior contact with police yeah so basically like what he's trying to say is the police didn't like me at all I'm a target already so being in the program and you can't have no police contact because I will actually jeopardize everything once you get locked up and you go see the judge again it's like okay you done like no more program for you Belinda also knew that avoiding police contact wasn't entirely in Terari's hands she saw it every day. We're in a neighborhood where the, that precinct don't get enough action. So it's like we're the only hood for that precinct. And they need more action coming from it. And because it's not, they're going to go there to try to stir something up, make something happen, arrest people, because they don't get arrests. It's a neighborhood you can leave your little children outside to go and play while the parents is upstairs cooking. They can go to the store and cross the street. Nobody's getting shot at and killed. It's nothing like that. By the numbers, Valinda was right. Their neighborhood was not a nest of crime. In 2018 and 2019 so far, there has been one murder and two shootings, well below the average in New York City. Valinda's version of her neighborhood can easily exist side by side with the parallel reality one that includes threats and low-grade violence and access to guns. Crime has dropped a massive amount in the last generation in New York, but there are still mean streets in Brooklyn, still dangerous behavior and allegiances, and Terari knows that. So I'm a part of the Bundle Boys. That's Brothers United, Never Divided, Live Eternally. We call ourselves that because, like, when we was growing up, like, we always stood together, um... One of my friends, he had diabetes, so 
he was in a hospital he was almost about to die since all my friends like always went to go check on him that that was what brought us all together and stuff the bundle boys were eight friends in Terari's housing development they hung out drank in the park Terari especially loved their dice games one day we was in front of the store we was on the block now it started off as a small game i rolled the two anything could be the two but he rolled a one two three automatic loss so now bank is 10. now i'm rolling now you feel me now i'm getting to head cracks head cracks mean you rolling sixes now you feel me bank is 60. now a young kid came he told me to shoot the whole 60. what did i do i rolled the four he fell to the four now bank is 120. man from there on i just went all the way up from five dollars to a whole band a whole band, a thousand dollars. And and you know how I got it to a band, four, five, six, baby. <laughs> we got the whole block crowded now. You feel me? So like, there was this one lady. She just stopped and she was on my side. She was like, "Yeah, keep going, baby, <laughs> keep going." Yeah, that was the best game of my life. The Bundle Boys weren't an established gang like the Bloods. They were tiny and hyper local, but they had rivalries with other small groups nearby. Now, the gang we do have beef with, we got beef with two gangs. No, we actually have beef with four gangs, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was all a little seven. hard to keep track of, even for Terrari. There are all these shifting alliances and beefs, like a small world game of thrones. Someone would get hurt, and a group would hit back. That usually meant physical fighting, beatdowns, mostly with fists. But people did have guns, and the danger they bring can't be contained. That being said, there's still a question of whether the strategy of gun court, set up to send everyone to prison for just possessing a gun, is that an approach that actually reduces violence? It sounds like it should work. The cops were convinced of it. And listen, many people often assume that harsh punishment equals deterrence, and eventually better behavior, from spanking kids on up. But researchers have looked repeatedly for proof that requiring prison for guns results in less violence. I could tell you all about studies in Virginia, Florida, Massachusetts, and Michigan. I'll cut to the chase. They all came up empty. And shootings in New York started to plummet long before gun court. The mayor's office gave me charts showing shootings going down at the same time as gun prosecutions rose. But in fact, 80% of the city's drop in murders took place far earlier, in the years before New York started imposing these steep mandatory prison sentences for guns. But forget all of that for a minute. Let's assume that sending everyone with a gun to prison does reduce shootings. So then you have to ask, as compared to what? Is this the best strategy? And what's the cost, the human fallout? Here's Valinda on how that assumption affects the cops in her neighborhood. They just think everybody's walking down the street with a pistol. So we're going to arrest him for no reason to take him in, to question him. Every time that you arrest a young black person, it messes up their future. Because when they go for jobs, all of this pop up. And it messes them up with getting the career they want, the future that they want. And it's not, that's not right. T. 
hear Maxim tell it, the idea people have about how diversion programs should work is that you just get someone like Terari to avoid guns and everything will fall into place. Like the gun version of Just Say No. I think in general there is this concept of thinking that, okay, now that you took a guilty plea, now that you you have an open case and stuff, all of a sudden you have to wake up and cut all the ties, completely change overnight, you know, just be a student in school. It's not as simple. It's not as easy. It, it takes time. Troy understood. Maxim wanted him to start staying away from those negative contacts. But Troy and Maxim both knew that sometimes the negative contacts come and find you. Being in the program, like you don't want to be seen in the streets too much because your friend's going to want you to do activities with them and stuff. Like, God forbid, kids come over to my neighborhood and they they get into a fight and, and I'm there. I got a choice to make, like, I'm in this program, but my friends want me to go over to another project and, and get into some trouble. So now it's like you in a you in a battle now. <laughs> like you got the the angel on your shoulder and the devil on your shoulder telling you, you got Mr. Maxim and your friends. Understanding all the risks and pressures Troy was facing, Maxim proposed a radical solution. He told Troy to get out of Dodge, leave home, stay with his grandparents to get away from the cops, the friends, the street, all of it. And when he told me that, I almost cried. I've been in this neighborhood for my whole life and stuff, and I didn't never want to leave my moms behind, my sister and my brother. Chari knew it would be harder to make it through ICP and stay out of prison if he didn't take Maxim's advice. But he decided to have a little faith in himself. Listen, I'm not leaving. It was time to step up and play my part. But this was no small task. Remember, the rule was no police contact. And the problem was, there were all sorts of things that could turn into infractions and jeopardize him. Playing dice on the block, stuff like that. that, See, that stuff would get me locked up and stuff. Once the police even come, I'll be the eyeball to get locked up over playing dice and Mr. Maxon on one head I was playing <laughs> why did you get locked up Terari I was playing dice so you was playing dice instead of looking for a job <laughs> but there was one constant reminder that this was no joke Terari had a curfew he had to call Maxim from inside his house by 10 o'clock every night that gave Alinda all the ammunition she needed to stay on him if you don't have your behind in this house the time you're supposed to, you're going to go to jail. If you be hanging around any of these people out here that you ain't got no business hanging around, you're going to go to jail and I'm not coming to visit you. I don't write. I don't do packages. I don't do collect phone calls. So just every day in his ear, every single day, I know he was getting tired of me. I could see it in his face expressions, but I didn't care. So Troy had to get used to staying in at night. But a real concern about being in a program like YCP is that people around you don't know what it is or how it works. What they know is that you were facing serious criminal charges. And they'll wonder how exactly you got out of going to prison. They could think you're staying off the street because you cut a deal and you're informing. The problem for Terari was figuring out how to ghost his friends sometimes without making them suspicious 
or losing them entirely. Working with Maxim, try look for a job. And hey, that turned into a pretty good excuse. To be honest, I didn't have to say I can't hang with you no more. I just did stuff like I'll tell my friends like, oh, I'm looking for jobs. I found other ways to not be there all the time. And that was that was more helpful too instead of me just saying, yo, I can't hang around with y'all no more. Cause that is dangerous too. Feel me? Like why you can't be, oh, you're not a part of this no more. Oh, so like what's going on with you? And it turned out Troy was good at getting a job. One day I was at McDonald's around my way and a lady she was coming inside of McDonald's. She had bags, so I just opened the door for her, and she was like, thank you. She was just complimenting me. Then she was like, "Um, yeah, come down to my bar. She worked in Manhattan. She gave me her number. I called her the next day. And that was it. Tari went down to the bar. The lady turned out to be the boss, and she gave him a job bussing tables. Tari and Maxim still talk about it. I think you demonstrated that you cared, and you... <laughs> just offered help to total yeah. stranger, right? Yes. And you showed yourself as a kind person, right? As someone who cares. Mm-hmm. And she realized that. And you never know, like you meet these people, right? You never know who, who is there. That person with the walker might be mm-hmm. somebody really valuable. And you got a job, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Try worked at the bar through New Year's of 2017 his halfway point in YCP. After that, he worked at an IHOP in Brooklyn and started studying. So, um, yeah, I was preparing myself because I was actually, like, I was trying to get into college, too. Try started making more of his music, too. Maxim got him enrolled in classes in an arts organization in Brooklyn called Brick. When I was young, I used to listen to music a lot. Try was also yeah, learning to make a podcast. Very meta, I know. He produced a three-minute piece about his love of music and his family. One afternoon, Troy played that piece for Kadeem Gibbs, the youth advocate who tries to talk young people into putting down their guns. You met him in earlier episodes. Anyway, we were all in the studio, and Troy was joking around about recording his music and the younger kids in his neighborhood. To him, it seemed like they were always beefing. Suddenly, Kadeem got real. He cautioned Terari that to make it in music or any profession, you have to make a permanent choice. You, you got to pick one. Because to build a, a music career, to have that type of, like, even if it's, like, independent and underground and small scale, like, you got to really build a real business. You got to actually have real infrastructure, you know what I mean? And to, to really focus on that, you can't do that and, and, and like, be a boss in the streets, too. You, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, like, but, I know what you're saying. But you can't do both, bro. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not going to work. It, it was a dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't a diversion program like YCP could give you a push. It could make you take care of business, like getting a GED or a job. But what happened next, as you outgrew the most sensitive and wild time of your teenage years and your early 20s, in the end, that was up to you. Next week on Charged, we're going to take an unexpected detour. Because last summer, while we were reporting the show, things went haywire for the person I least expected, for Kadeem Gibbs. I was, you know, in the airport and on the plane and in the back of my mind the whole time, like, I just was like, 
when I wake up on Monday, I'm going to jail. This episode of Charge was produced by Alvin Mellis and written by me. Jack Kitt is our senior editor. Mixed by Catherine Ray Mondo. Mastering and original music by Merritt Jacob. If you want to learn more about the issues raised in this show, I have a new book out. It's also called Charged. Check it out wherever you buy books. Additional script editing for this episode by Verlin Williams. Additional mixing by Chow Tu. Research and fact-checking by Will Reed. Editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Special thanks to Rob Smith, Sarah Leonard, Alice Whitwam, Lisa Larson-Walker, WBUR in Boston, Jason Solomon, and Stanford Video. Each week, Slate Plus members get an additional episode of Charged. This week, we're talking about diversion with Adam Mansky of the Center for Court Innovation. To learn more and sign up for Slate Plus, head to slate.com slash charged. Charged.